Over the past 12 months, you have written and called with questions and comments. And I really appreciate it every time you take the time to reach out, because I know that you are busy and are not dwindling your thumbs. Your questions and comments are very relevant, and so I wanted to share 10 of these with you. So this episode is Text Talk's very first Q&A. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. In this very first Q&A session of Tax Talks, we picked one question about FPT, one about GST, one about CGT, and then five questions about SMSFs and estate, and then some general questions and comments. This is Heider Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The very first question we ever received came from Phil Moore in Melbourne in May 2018. Phil had listened to episode 29 of Text Talks about FBT car parking benefits. And you might remember from that episode that an employer only provides a car parking fringe benefit if, among other conditions, there is commercial all-day parking within a one-kilometer radius of the employer's premises that charges a certain minimum amount. If there's no such commercial all-day parking, then you don't have to worry about car parking fringe benefits at all. There are none. So Phil's question, and a very justified question, is what does commercial all-day parking actually mean? Is a Colts or Woolworths car park commercial all-day parking? Here's Phil's question. Hi, Heide. Firstly, big thanks for your helpful podcast. Really interesting. Uh, I have an FBT question I'm hoping you can help with, please. So I'm keen to get a definition of commercial all-day parking in relation to provision of on-site car parking for staff. So the only nearby paid parking is a Coles supermarket, and they charge $50 per day for all-day parking. But clearly that's a punitive fee scale to discourage long-term parkers, so they don't need to fear with shoppers. Uh, now I don't imagine that meets the ATO definition of commercial all-day parking. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, please. Uh, as an aside, I recall the first time I delved into this legislation years ago and the definition of what constituted within one kilometre. It went on to define that it had to be the most direct way on foot, public access ways were included, private access, access ways were not, etc. Uh, I was trying to imagine the army of bureaucrats sitting around a table defining every facet of just that tiny piece of the overall legislation. Love the show and interested in your thoughts. Thanks, Heider. So does the Colts car parking near Phil's business count as commercial all-day car parking for FBT purposes? And the answer is no, it doesn't. And it doesn't thanks to a certain taxation ruling, taxation ruling 96-26. And there in paragraph 81 it says, we do not regard the following parking arrangements as constituting commercial parking stations. And the very first point on that list is car parking facilities with a primary purpose other than providing all-day parking that usually charge penalty rates significantly higher than the rates chargeable for all-day parking at commercial all-day parking facilities, such as parking provided for short-term shoppers or hotel guests. And so that is exactly what Coles car parking is about. Coles is not in the business of 
providing car parking. That's not their primary purpose. They usually charge penalty rates significantly higher than commercial car parking facilities. And they meet exactly the example. They provide parking for short-term shoppers. So the Coles car park near Phil's business does not count as commercial all-day parking for FBT purposes. So Phil doesn't have to worry about providing a car parking fringe benefit. The next question is about GST. It comes from Wes at Elliot Health Accounting in Dubbo, New South Wales. Wes asks about the GST status of reports written by allied health professionals, for example, psychologists or physiotherapists. Wes had read the article on the Text Talks website about GST for psychologists. So here's Wes's question about the GST status of allied health reports. And since Wes emailed his question in, his question is spoken by an actor. Thank you so much for posting your update and info on GST for psychologists. It is incredibly helpful. I run a bookkeeping business specifically for psychs, and I was wondering if you could help me. The issue is around clinical testing slash assessment and report writing, and whether this is ever a GST-free health service. Wes then goes through different scenarios and asks whether it makes a difference whether the report is covered by Medicare, whether it got a GP referral, or whether it is paid by the patient or somebody else. And Medicare is easy. Anything covered by Medicare is GST-free. And reports written in hospitals, aged care and disability settings are also straightforward because you have other legislation backing you up. But for the rest, there is no short answer because neither the GST Act nor the ATO covers allied health reports. The ATO comments on medical reports, but not allied health reports or reports written by allied health professionals. And so you have three options. You either, one, assume that the rules for medical reports also apply to allied health reports, or two, you apply the general rules for other health services to allied health reports, or three, you do both. And we follow the third option here. We assume that rules for medical reports also apply to allied health reports and that otherwise Section 3810 applies. Allied health reports tend to be subject to GST since often written for other purposes than the actual treatment. But they are GST-free if one of the following applies. They're GST-free if the allied health report is covered by Medicare. Medicare is your get-out-of-jail card. Anything covered by Medicare is GST-free, with some very minor exceptions like cosmetic procedures. The second possibility is that the allied health report is GST-free if a medical practitioner, like a GP, or an approved pathology practitioner needs the report to provide their GST-free medical service. So a referral alone is not enough. The report actually needs to be part of a GST-free medical service, and the emphasis is on medical service. And the third option is that a member of a specified profession and specified profession in Section 3810 is a list. I think there are 14 professions listed like psychologists, physiotherapists and a few more. If a member of a specified profession documents and then follows a process for appropriate treatment 
and the recipient of the supply is the patient or a party listed in Section 3860, then the allied health report can also be GST-free. I need to add that the appropriate treatment needs to be accepted in the profession as the right thing to do. So to come back to West scenarios, it does matter who pays for the report. And the parties listed in Section 3860 is basically just covering the very prevalent scenario that a health insurance or workers' comp or NDIS or a different scheme pays for the treatment. So if one of those three scenarios applies, then the Allied Health Report would be GST-free. So that's the answer in a nutshell, always assuming that the rules for medical reports also apply to Allied Health Report and that otherwise Section 3810 applies. But of course, the devil is in the detail. The next question is about CGT, and it comes from Matthew James Shelley about whether plant and equipment is an active asset for CGT purposes. And since Matthew emailed his question in, here's an actor again speaking Matthew's question. Is it possible for plant and equipment to be an active asset and hence apply the CGT rollover provision replacement asset rule? And then Matthew gives an example. We simplified the numbers. I have a transport company that are selling their business. The main asset are trucks, P&E, with a written down value of, say, $2 million. The market value of the trucks is $3 million. We are trying to sell the business for $4 million. So there is considerable gain, obviously. Goodwill needs to be accounted for. If we sell the business as a going concern, how do we apply the CGT concessions? So there is a gain of $2 million in all this. A sales price of $4 million, less a $2 million cost base, and the trucks have a market value of three million. So Matt's question is whether the trucks qualify as active assets to meet the basic conditions for the small business CGT concessions, notably the small business CGT rollover relief in subdivision 152E. If this is an asset sale, and it probably is since the company is selling the business, then you don't need to worry about the trucks being active assets or not. The trucks are not treated as CGT assets. They are depreciable assets, and I never can pronounce that word, depreciable assets. And hence, although CGT assets as such, not taxed under the CGT provisions per 128-24 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 97. So the difference between the market value and the written down value of the trucks would be recognized on revenue account. What is treated as a CGT asset, however, is the goodwill. The business sells for $4 million and the market value of the trucks is $3 million, so there is a $1 million capital gain for the goodwill. And this goodwill might qualify for the small business CGT concessions, but of course not for the rollover relief. If this was a share deal, then the entire transaction would be handled under the CGT provisions and then you could qualify for the small business CGT concessions. However, there are tight rules around the sale of shares and don't forget that companies don't qualify for the 50% CGT discount in Division 115. So Division 152 is all you got. And when I say the share deal would always be handled under the CGT provisions, of course, this doesn't apply to share traders, etc., who hold shares as trading stock. But coming back to Matt's case, there's another issue. Matt talks about replacement assets. If the trucks are basically just replaced with new trucks, 
then there's a high chance that the ATO, if they ever review this transaction, won't see this as the sale of a business, but as a sale of old trucks that are replaced with new trucks. And then there would be no goodwill and hence no CGT concession at all. So now we are coming to SMSFs. We have four questions about SMSF and then one question about estates, testamentary trust to be more precise. The next question comes from G.S. Anderson 75 or G. Sanderson 75 by email. And here is what it says. I received a letter from my personal super fund manager asking if I intend to claim a tax deduction on my personal super contributions. Should I do that? And the answer is very straightforward. The answer is yes, provided two things. A, that your marginal tax rate outside of super exceeds 15%. And if you are over the Division 293 threshold, if it exceeds 30% and the Division 293 threshold is 250000 at the moment. And the answer is also yes, provided that B, you still have concessional cap space left because you can only tax deduct $25,000 in concessional contributions each year. And then there's another question that is very similar to this topic. It comes from Kay Seymour in Sydney. And she asks, does it matter whether I salary sacrifice my extra super payments or pay them later and then claim a deduction? And the answer is it doesn't matter whether you salary sacrifice super now or contribute and then claim a tax deduction later within the same year makes no difference tax-wise anymore. Your taxable income will be the same because there is no longer a work test for claiming a tax deduction. But just one word of caution, this is already full-blown financial advice. <laughs> we are not in the position to give you financial advice. So for your own personal circumstances, please check with somebody who actually knows what they are talking about. The next question is not actually a question, but it is a comment. And it is a very good comment. It comes from Michelle Ziller from Tax Accountant WA in Kewdale, Perth in Western Australia. And Michelle makes a very helpful comment about SMSFs and ABN. Michelle is an SMSF auditor and she writes the following. I've got an SMSF client that has never had an ABN. There is no legal requirement for a fund to have an ABN and the fund can't be compelled to get one. This is annoying because it's impossible to lodge an ACR through ESAT without an ABN and I, as an auditor of the fund, can't check the complying status of the fund without an ABN. So it would be much more convenient for all concerned if the fund had an ABN. If the ATO says that they cannot make the fund get an ABN, the ATO's hands are tied as there just isn't legislation for this. ACR stands for Auditor Contravention Report and is the report that an SMSF auditor has to submit to the ATO when they find serious breaches within an SMSF. And ESET is the ATO's electronic superannuation audit tool, so ESET, and this allows SMSF auditors to lodge such an ACR, among other things. But coming back to Michelle's comment, she's right. 
When you scroll the internet, everybody tells you to get an ABN for your SMSF, that your SMSF needs an ABN, and the ATO wants your SMSF to have an ABN. But Michelle is right, there is actually no legal obligation to do that. Neither the CISAC nor the CIS regulations say that you have to, and the ATO can't make you do it either, if you don't want to. next question comes from Lynn Miller in Sydney and she writes per email. There are individual partnership company and trust tax returns, but there is no SMSF tax return, just an SMSF annual return. Why is that? And there's a very simple explanation. The reason is that the ATO is not just the tax collector, but also the regulator of SMSFs. And as a regulator, the ATO needs a lot more data than just tax data. So the annual return is not just about tax, but about this additional data as well. Hence the name annual return. So John wants to know whether a couple, so a husband and a wife, or two husbands or two wives, whether a couple can use one testamentary trust together. And the short answer is no. Everybody in Australia has their own estate. There's no joint estate and there's also no such thing as a joint will. And so there's also no joint testamentary trusts since testamentary trusts are established through will. What might be possible is that the surviving spouse stipulates in their will that their estate is to go into the testamentary trust of the spouse who died first. But for that, you need to involve lawyers to make sure this actually works since there are a number of legal hurdles. Testamentary trusts are not cheap. And so before you put a testamentary trust into your will, check what would actually go into your estate. Your super might go to your sister pendants and not your estate. Life insurance payouts go to the nominated beneficiaries and not your estate. Property held as joint tenants goes to the other tenant and survivorship and not your estate. The same applies to shares and bank accounts in joint names. And family trusts don't go into your estate either. So your estate might be empty or minuscule. And then you don't need a testamentary trust. So this was the technical part. And now just some general comments and questions. There is a question from Jeff Haston, and he asks the following. Thank you for doing tax talks. Does listening count as continuing professional education? And I was really excited when I got this question from Jeff Haston, because the short answer is yes. If you listen to three episodes and they add up to 120 minutes, you earned two CPE hours, two continuing professional education hours. The long answer is every association, CPA, CAANZ, TPB, IPA, and so on, they all have their own rules about CPE. But I haven't come across an association yet that doesn't count technical podcasts like text talks as CPE. The next question comes from Mel Carter in Melbourne. Have you ever done an interview that you didn't put on iTunes? Yes, we have. I once did an interview with somebody close to the Bywater case who knows Mr. Vandergoot personally and was affected by the whole Bywater saga. But later he felt that it was too personal and I completely understand. And once I did an interview that I would have loved to publish. It was with an SMSF auditor who had been deregistered by ASIC 
but then reinstated by the AAT. The auditor spoke openly about the process, what he went through, and especially the emotional turmoil and bouts of depression he suffered as a result. And I think that would have been a very helpful episode for anybody facing a similar predicament. But a few days later, he changed his mind and asked me not to publish it. And of course, I honored his request. And the last question and comment is from Mark Bird in Melbourne, tax lawyer and tax director of CGU. And Mark writes the following. Hi, Don. These are fantastic. I'm listening for free, but presumably I have to pay some time. Let me know the cost and we'll come on board. Text Talks is free. It is free to listen, free to download. You don't have to sign up or pay anything. Text Talks is not a money-making venture. If it was, we would have failed terribly. But it is a platform for all of us to share expertise and knowledge because the better each of us is, the better it is for all of us. So using this as the final parting words, this is the first Text Talks Q&A. Thank you to all of you for writing, listening and reading. Please reach out when you can. It is always great to hear from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to class for sponsoring this episode. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.